Well, next Sunday, Fred Cummings, one of our elders, will be back with us and will actually be back in the pulpit after an eight-month cancer battle. And so Fred, is uh, his 100-day quarantine will end. He is free to be with us, but not to be as proximate as we might be inclined. So smiles and waves and fist bumps are okay. Handshake, hugs, and kisses are not. So if Fred seems standoffish, there is good reason for that. But we're just very grateful to have him back with us. Uh, Fred's cancer battle began last September when he felt a pain in his clavicle that turned out to be a fracture that was caused by a tumor that was caused by multiple myeloma that was caused by malignant plasma cells. And as soon as that became the diagnosis, Fred went all out immediately to completely eradicate it from his body. He did surgery, he did radiation treatments, he did multiple rounds of chemotherapy, immunotherapy, stem cell transplant. Fred didn't merely want to mitigate symptoms. He didn't merely want to slow the progress of the disease. Fred wanted every ounce of cancer eradicated from every cell in his body. And he was drastic in the measures he took because the diagnosis was dire. And so Fred wanted all the cancer gone. That was the purpose behind this eight month battle that he's been fighting. And the ultimate cause of cancer and every other pain and woe that we suffer is sin. And we need to be mindful that as we're walking through the life of Jesus and seeing him perform these miracles and heal these people and share these wonderful accounts, that the primary purpose that Jesus came was to free us from our sins. The very name Jesus means Yahweh saves. And the angel appeared to Joseph and said, when Mary's child is born, you are to name him Jesus, for he will free his people from their sins. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The Apostle Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. So Jesus does have important life lessons to teach us on how to be more moral, on how to be a better married person, on how to be a better parent. But that's not primarily why he came. He came to free his people from their sins. And the painful marriages and parenting situations that we find ourselves in are symptoms of that sin. Jesus did have the authority to calm the storm and the winds and the waves, to multiply food, to feed the thousands. But he didn't come here primarily to manipulate nature or to provide for the physical needs of the hungry. He came to free his people from their sins. Jesus could heal the sick. He could raise the dead. But even death itself is a symptom of sin that God warned Adam and Eve that if they ate of the forbidden fruit, that the day they would eat of it, they would die. They received a death sentence. First, the physical death, the separation of the soul from the body, and later a spiritual death, the separation of the soul from God forever. And so Jesus came to deal with sin. Jesus came to forgive our sins. Jesus came to call sinners to follow him so that they could tell other sinners how their sins could be forgiven. That's the mission of Christ. And that's the point of our text today as we open to Matthew chapter 9. This long section in chapters 8 and 9 have been about Jesus' authority. Jesus' compassionate authority to heal afflictions. Jesus' authority to teach authoritatively. Jesus' authority over nature. Jesus' authority over spiritual forces. Jesus' authority over, over, over. But all of this is related to Jesus' authority over sins and his mission to free his people from their sins. Today we're going to see that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, 
to call sinners to follow him as his disciples and to make all things new as he institutes the new covenant to accomplish this work. Let's look at this first passage. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. So the sea is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was in Capernaum, and then he crossed over the sea. The storm hit them. He quieted the winds and the waves. He crossed over to the land of Gadara of the Gadarenes. He cast out a legion of demons. And then now he is crossing back over to the Sea of Galilee. And his city isn't Bethlehem where he was born or Nazareth where he was raised, but Capernaum, the base of operations for his public ministry in Galilee. And while he's there, he began once again to teach. He wasn't there just to be a miracle worker, but the miracles validated his teaching. And Matthew tells us that they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, Mark and Luke are more detailed in recounting this vivid episode. Jesus is teaching inside a building of some kind. It's packed, we know. And four men came carrying their paralyzed friend on a pallet, expecting or hoping and praying that Jesus would heal him. But they couldn't get through the crowds because everybody was sitting on top of one another. And so they went to the ladder that often was laying outside of two-story roofs. So in Palestinian homes, it gets very hot. There was no AC. So you would have the home, and then you would also have an upper room that would often be open to the wind or the breeze or even just open space itself so that you could get out and get some break from the heat, get some breeze off the sea. Well, they went up there, carried their friend on the pallet, and then they dug a hole through the clay roof of this home. So imagine that you're here one Sunday, and then those of you in the front row start seeing some acoustic tile droppings start dropping on you. And you kind of look up and you look around, and more and more, and now clumps of clay are coming down. And then you start seeing sunlight coming in, and then in this packed house, completely interrupting the lesson, you see this rectangular pallet lowering down on four ropes. And then when it gets to the bottom, this face looking up at Jesus and four faces looking down through the hole in the roof that they just covered. And some might have been amazed at their ingenuity to help their friend. Some might have been upset at their audacity to interrupt the sermon. Uh, the homeowner probably thought, is my insurance going to cover this? But this was a dramatic episode that had everybody's attention. And the man comes down. And so Jesus, what he sees is their faith and the person's apparent need and his real need. And Jesus says to him, take courage, son. Now, this is the only person in the Gospels that Jesus addresses with the endearment son or child. Because don't you think that person was a little bit nervous? I mean, one, is pretty precarious being lowered down by friends who haven't done this exercise often. These aren't experienced first responders. And as he's coming down, how is the famous rabbi going to respond? Is he going to criticize me? Is he going to condemn me? Is he going to curse me? Is he going to rebuke me? He doesn't know how this is going to be received. Is he going to recoil because a sick person might make the rabbi that was wholly unclean? So Jesus' first words are to comfort him. Take courage. Don't be afraid. He says the same thing to the woman with the issue of blood when she's afraid to touch his garment. He says the same thing to the blind man when he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus is so tender. He's so compassionate. He never turns away any that come to him in need. And there's no one that ought be afraid of Jesus. That no matter who you are or what you've done, 
no matter what's in your life, your past or your present, if you come to Jesus, he beckons you. He'll receive you. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So that's the heart of the Savior. And then he begins to say to him something shocking. Your sins are forgiven. Now, today as then, some people presume that when someone suffers affliction, that it may be due to a sin in their life. And there are occasions when there is a direct cause and effect between you were an alcoholic for decades and you have psoriasis of the liver. Uh, you were a lifetime smoker and you have emphysema. There is sometimes a direct correlation between you did this thing that was abusing your body and now we see in that in your body. Uh, Oscar Wilde, the author of The Picture of Dorian Gray, said that by the time we are 40 years old, we all have the body that we deserve. And what he meant by that is, four decades into life, you bear the fruit in your life of the decisions you've made about your lifestyle. But that's not the assumption here. But Jesus knows that there is sin behind the paralysis, just like sin is behind every woe of the world. All of the pain and the suffering and the wickedness in the world is due to sin. That God intended men and women to relate to him properly, and when we rebel against him and said, there are harmful consequences. God intends a man and a woman to live together as husband and wife in exclusive intimacy. And when you violate that, there are dire consequences. God commands children to be respectful to their parents, for parents not to aggravate their children. And when they violate that, there's disruption in the family. So at the root of every woe in the world, everything you read or will read in the paper today is sin, rebellion against God. And so the ultimate issue behind everything that we want better in our life is sin, and all of us are sinners. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven, which they take to be blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. This is one of those divine prerogatives that only God can do. Blasphemy is slander against God. It can be profaning his name. It can be cursing him. It can be saying profane, profane things about him. Or it can be about taking on a divine prerogative for yourself. So when Jesus uses the divine name, I am for himself, they picked up stones to stone him because that was blasphemy. When he stands before the Sanhedrin and applies the reference in Daniel to the son of man who's coming to judge the world, they said they tore their garments and said, what further need do we need of testimony? This man is a blasphemer. In John 10, Jesus said, I and the father are one. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered them and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So make no mistake about it, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth claimed to be God. He used the name of God for himself. He claimed to speak for God. He identified himself with God. He used the divine name for himself. And he claimed to be able to forgive sins, which only God can do. And this is the context for C.S. Lewis's famous Lord, liar, lunatic argument. So this is the context from mere Christianity. Among the Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he were God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. Before Abraham was, I am. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of the time. And one part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed. 
because we have heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins. Unless the speaker is God, this is so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You step on my toe, I forgive you. You steal my money, I forgive you. But what would we make of a man, unrobbed and untrodden, who forgives others for stepping on other people's toes and stealing other people's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we could give of his conduct. Isn't that a great line? Asinine fatuity. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven. And he never waited to consult all the other people whether they wanted their sins forgiven. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he were part in part chiefly concerned. In fact, the person chiefly concerned in all offenses. This only makes sense if he really was God, whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words imply what I can only regard as silliness and conceit. And yet, even his enemies, when they read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Christ says he is humble and meek, and we believe him. But we don't notice that if he were truly a humble and meek man, he is making some unmeek, unhumble sayings. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus claims to be God. And we who are sinners who have come to forgiveness can testify that that is true. So Jesus now backs up this claim that he's made. The people there were shocked, thinking that he's blasphemed. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, another divine attribute, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? And the scribes, the scholars of the Hebrew Scriptures, were talking among themselves, saying, Who is this man? And Jesus says, Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? Now, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's non-provable. How would you know if that were true or not? Until Judgment Day, and you see if the person has entered into heaven. So, in order to prove this claim that can't be otherwise falsified, he is going to do something that is visibly demonstrable. He is going to display an authority over paralysis to prove the point that he can forgive sins. And so he says, So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up, and he picked up his bed, and he went home. Now we can picture this. 
this hole in the roof, the sun shining through, packed house, and this man that came down unable to move, all of a sudden gets up, picks up his pallet that he was lowered on, walks through the crowd, and out the door. Excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me. And the paralyzed man in a small community that the people knew to be paralyzed walks out the door. Can you imagine the conversation that he had with his four friends on the way home? If they had words at all. Can you imagine him waking up the next morning, not having to wait for someone to come help clean him and change him, but to get up unburdened by paralysis and to realize that he was unburdened by sin and to realize that his sins had been forgiven. And how did that transform his walk with God, his relationship with those around him? Uh, did he hang up the pallet on the wall as a trophy, as a discussion piece, so that for the rest of his days he could tell people of how he used to lay helpless on that pallet until the day came that his friends in faith lowered him down and Jesus of Nazareth said, your sins are forgiven and commanded him to take up his pallet and walk. And he did because Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. But Jesus doesn't just forgive sins and then sinners away home. He also has the authority to call sinners to come and to follow him. Look at verses nine and following. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. Now our narrative becomes autobiographical at this point because this man, Matthew, is the author of the gospel according to Matthew. So we are now getting an account of this man who was in the tax booth when Jesus comes up to him. Now this is not what's called a tax farmer like Zacchaeus that had bid for the right to collect taxes for Rome and any overage that he collected, he could keep for himself. This was a tax collector who would work for a man like Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus might be resented from a distance, but Matthew was loathed face to face because you had to deal with him. And when people came on the highway or on the sea with goods to buy or sell, he charged them a duty, a tariff, a sales tax. And for the Jews, they were notoriously corrupt their testimony was not considered valid in court. They were considered corrupt because they were often had dealings with Gentiles and Gentile money. And you're working for the Romans who are the oppressive group that's ruling over us. So tax collectors are often associated in the gospels with this other word, sinners. Jesus has already referred to tax collectors in the Sermon on the Mount. When he's telling people to love even those who don't love them, he said, what benefit does it do you when you love those who love you back? Don't even tax collectors do the same? So even Jesus has already said, tax collectors are those that only love those that love them or only love those who benefits them if they love them. And yet Jesus goes up to him. And again, you wonder what would have been the expected response of the crowd that followed Jesus out of the house when he walks up? Were they expecting a resounding rabbinical rebuke? Some snide, sarcastic remark? Some condemnation against this corrupt traitor? And Jesus says, follow me. The exact same two words that he said to Peter and to Andrew, presumably the words he used to call James and John the fishermen to themselves. This invitation to come and to be his disciple is now issued to someone that didn't, Jews didn't even want in their company. This was a corrupt tax credit, but Jesus wanted him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And when he did so, he was walking away from his profession and career. 
Peter, Andrew, James, and John could go back to their fishing boats. Hey, you had a long mission trip, you had an internship, you did a long rabbinical study with the rabbi, but now you're back and you get back to fishing. But when Matthew walked away, he was walking away from this lucrative profession and everything that he could have re-entered into. And so uh, most Thursdays, I have lunch with Mel Summerall, who is the founder of Denton Bible Church. And this last Thursday, I brought Mel a gift from Gene and Connie Greenwood. It was a baseball cap that had CF&I on it. And CF&I stands for Colorado Fuel and Iron because that was the large steel plant in Pueblo, Colorado, where Mel served as a production superintendent for 25 years. Until in his late 40s, five years from full retirement, Mel felt the call to ministry. That God wanted him to leave his job, go to seminary, and then do whatever the Lord called to him next. And so Mel went on a drive with his manager and said, uh, God's called me to be a pastor, and so I'm turning in my resignation, and I'm going to go to Dallas, and if I could pass baby Greek, Greek 1 and 2, then I'm going to stay in seminary. And he said his manager slammed on the brakes, turned and looked at him like he was crazy. He's like, what? 25 years in the steel mill, five years away from full retirement with a pension, and you're going to leave all that to go and tell people about Jesus? Can't Jesus wait? Just put in your five years, and here's all the good things that will happen. But Mel and Patty, for them at least, couldn't wait because Jesus had said, now. And so they left. And they burnt all those bridges behind them because when Jesus says, follow me, you come. And they did. And now Jesus does something that is shocking and offensive. He attends a banquet at Matthew's house. The text says that Matthew hosted a banquet for his friends and his fellow tax collectors and sinners. And while they were there, the Pharisees saw this and said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? Back in that day, meals had significance for your social status, whom you invited to a meal, what meal you were invited to, where you sat at the meal, what food you were served at the meal. And good religious people like the Pharisees didn't eat with notorious sinners like tax collectors or like others that would have moved in that tribe. Um, the parallel today might be, imagine if someone changed their political affiliation and then invited their new political party friends to a banquet with all of their formal political party friends. That would be a tense meal. Or imagine if someone who had been pro-abortion and changes their position to pro-life and now invites the person at woman to woman to come to a banquet at their house with all of their Planned Parenthood volunteers. That would be an awkward meal. Or imagine if someone was living a uh, rebellious, sex, sexual, uh, rebellious sexual lifestyle and then converts to Christianity and invites the leaders of their church to come to all of their former friends and friends who've just come off a pride parade. That would be awkward for everybody. It'd be awkward for this group, for this group. Nobody felt comfortable with that intermingling. But Jesus did. Because Jesus came to cure sinners. Not to hang around the relatively righteous. And at the end of the day, he was committed to pleasing his father, not appeasing his peers. So Jesus says to them, When Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus came to heal the spiritually unhealthy, and so he had to be around the spiritually unhealthy. If you go to your doctor's office, 
You shouldn't be shocked and offended if you see sick people there. That's who comes to a doctor's office. If you went to someone, a physician in a hospital, or a nurse or a medical technician, and rebuked them for being around all those sick people, well, who else would a person in a hospital be around than sick people? Their whole purpose isn't there, isn't to celebrate the sickness. It's not to say that that's okay, but it's to help them. And the only way that you can help a sick person is being in proximity to that sick person. And so Jesus was around tax gatherers and sinners because Jesus had come to forgive the sins of tax gatherers and sinners, even though people did not like that, even though that was not respectable. And he's going to expect his followers to do the same. He says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He quotes here Hosea 6, 6, where God is saying he is not pleased with the mere external religiosity of Israel, that you obey the festivals, you come and make the sacrifices, but your heart is hard, you're unmerciful, you're non-compassionate. What God desires is a heart of love and compassion for others that then can worship God in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So we're not to be condemning and condemnatory towards others. We are to love them and to lead them to the same Savior that forgave us in our sins because ultimately we were no more righteous than they. We were in need of forgiveness. They are in need of forgiveness. And as forgiven ones, we can go to others and tell them where they can find forgiveness as well. But to do this is sometimes going to take some new forms and expressions. Look at verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him and said, Why do the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Most Jews fasted on certain days, like New Year's and the Day of Atonement, or there might be a national day of fasting and prayer. But the especially religious Jews, like the Pharisees and presumably the disciples of John the Baptist, would fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And their complaint is, why are Jesus' disciples not doing this? So presumably Matthew's banquet was on Monday or Thursday when the holy people were fasting, but Jesus and his disciples did not. And they questioned their commitment. They questioned their zeal. They questioned their religiosity. Why are you not doing what we're doing? And Jesus answers them. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus gives an analogy. If you are a member of the wedding party, when the wedding banquet happens, you don't fast because it's a time for celebrating. So my daughter was at a wedding yesterday, and if they had been there, and if they had been part of the bridal party, and they go in, and everybody sits down, and the food is brought, and they turn it away and say, no, thank you, I'm fasting. That would be inappropriate. Now, for some, that might be offensive because this is a time of celebration. And so Jesus says they can't fast now because the bridegroom is here. And for a knowledgeable Jew, they recognized that this was a messianic indication that God was going to come to retrieve his bride, that God was going to come and there would be a wedding banquet. Isaiah 54 says, Your husband Israel is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. The Lord has called you like a wife forsaken, grieved in spirit, like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected. 
Jesus is saying that he is God coming to claim his bride. And the Bible often uses in the New Testament this imagery of Christ as the bridegroom of the church, his bride. In Ephesians 5, Christ loves the bride, his church. And we husbands are to love our wives like Christ loves the church. That sacrificially, that unconditionally. In Matthew, he's going to reckon the kingdom of heaven to people waiting for the arrival of a groom, tending their lamps with oil. Be faithful, be ready, be alert. He's going to talk about the king sending out wedding invitations for his son's wedding. And those that rejected it are turned away. And so he invites others to come in. The book of Revelation ends with a wedding feast. When Christ the bridegroom comes and the bride descends. And now we have this great celebration. So what Jesus is saying to them is they can't fast now because the bridegroom's here. I've come for my people. But he also indicates that they will fast in a little bit because he is going to be taken away. That Jesus is going to be separated from them for a season. That he is going to be betrayed and arrested and killed and then ascended. And during that time of separation, while we wait for the groom to return, now we fast, now we pray, now we mourn, but not then. John himself had told his disciples about this. In John 3, John's disciples came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was, beyond, who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testified, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. You started this whole thing. You started this baptism phenomena. Jesus came to you, and now everybody's going to Jesus, not to you. John says this, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. John wasn't threatened by Jesus' popularity. John came as the forerunner so that people would go to Jesus. He said, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. The bridegroom is Jesus. So even John acknowledged this. And then Jesus gives two other illustrations of why his new teachings would take on new forms. Look at verse 16. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Clothes shrink with washing. The fibers contract, the threads tighten, and so it shrinks. If you put an unshrunk cloth on a pre-shrunk garment, when the new shrinks on the unshrunk, there's a tear, there's a rip. And so sometimes there needs to be a new form for new instruction. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. A wineskin would have been an animal skin used to store wine and other liquid. But over time, as it aged, it grew unelastic. So if you put new wine in it that wasn't fully fermented, while it fermented, the gas caused it to expand, and if it had already lost its elasticity, it would burst. And now you lost the skin and the wine. Jesus' point is, his teachings of the gospel and the new covenant are going to need new forms and expressions in order to survive and thrive the way that God intended. Jesus said, 
or Paul said of Jesus, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. And for him to make the two into one new man, the church, then those laws that separated Jews from Gentiles had to be done away with. Jesus fulfilled them. There had to be a new expression, a new form of the church to accommodate this. When Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system, we didn't need the temple and the tabernacle anymore. Now we would have a church that would be decentralized. When Jesus came in fulfillment as the, the priest in the line of Melchizedek, then the Aaronic Levitical priesthood was set aside. There was going to be a new form and expression of the priesthood because all those shadows had fulfilled their purpose. The substance had come. And so there is going to be a new expression, new forms, new disciples to be able to truly receive and pass on his new teachings. So, so what are some of the lessons that we learn from this text? First of all, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Therefore, we should come to Jesus for forgiveness because all of us are sinners. The word sin means to fall short, that we all fall short of God's standards. We have all missed the mark that he has set for us. And therefore, there is none of us who are able to stand before God on our own righteousness. God is perfect. We are not. Therefore, we needed a perfect representative to obey the law perfectly on our behalf. We needed a sinless substitute to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. And the only way to find forgiveness is through Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. And so every human being should come to Jesus for forgiveness of their sins because Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Secondly, Jesus has the authority to call sinners. And he does. And so we should all respond to that call. He didn't just come to get the educated and the elite, the wealthy and the powerful. He didn't go to the rabbinical schools or the rabbis. Jesus went to fishermen and said, I'll make you fishers of men. He went to a tax collector and said, I'll show you how to collect souls for God. He takes people like you and I and bids us come to him to forgive us, but then not just to send us on our merry way, but to follow him to follow his message in believing what he teaches, to follow his model in emulating the life that he lived, to follow his mandates and obeying his commands, and in following his commission to go and take that good news to all the nations of the earth. Thirdly, Jesus associated with sinners in order to cure them of their sins, and so should his disciples. And we don't have a very good track record of this. This is Paul's words to the Corinthians. There was a man in Corinth who was having immoral relations with his stepmother. And so Paul ordered him to be removed from the church. You are a member of God's family, not behaving according to God's family's rules. You need to be put out of God's family so that you'll repent and be restored. And he was. But some of the Corinthians misunderstood that and said, oh, we shouldn't then associate with any immoral person. And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, with the covetous, the swindlers, the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother in Christ if he's an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. 
What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Within God's family, those who are members of God's church, there is a standard. God is holy and therefore we are to be holy. And in order to protect God's reputation and the reputation of God in the community and to protect God's children, when there is flagrant, unrepentant sin, there is sometimes a need to remove that person from fellowship for a season in hopes that they will return, in hopes that they can be restored. But that's not the rule by which we live in the world. Paul says, otherwise you'd have to leave the world. And so Christians should not just belong to Bible studies, but bowling clubs. They shouldn't merely have awanas, but they should be going out and doing martial arts and judo. They should be involved in activities that bring us in fellowship with non-believers because otherwise, how are we going to share with non-believers the good news of Jesus Christ? Uh, there was a church in Denton once on the square, aptly called Church on the Square. And the pastor gave them a challenge one Sunday. This week, I want everyone here to go share the gospel with one person. Next Sunday came. He said, show of hands, how many of you shared the gospel with at least one person? Very sheepish, very few. He said, I I'm asking you that not to shame you, but I want you now to take out a piece of paper and to write down why you did not share your faith with another person this week. If it's such good news, why didn't we share it? Three reasons came out as they pulled their church. One was, I was scared to. I thought they would mock me, reject me. Uh, I, I didn't want to be mocked. Two was they didn't know how to. No one's ever taught me how to give the gospel in a clear presentation. Number three was, I don't know any non-believers. That normally when a person comes to Christ, you then fall into a church and in church community, and if we're not careful, our entire life becomes insulated in a Christian bubble. Where the truth is, we just don't know that many non-believers anymore. And so the challenge is to get to know our neighbors, to be involved in our community to associate with those who aren't doing the right thing, not because we're endorsing that or saying it's okay, but because they need to know Jesus. And the fact that they were involved in things that offend Jesus shouldn't keep us from them. It didn't keep Jesus from them. It is not endorsing sin to associate with sinners. We can be around them in a way that is loving without loving their sin. Uh, those of us who have smokers in our life, we love them enough to want them to quit smoking but that doesn't mean we disassociate ourselves from them until they quit smoking. We love those who do things that offend God and are harmful to themselves, and we love them enough to tell them that. And we love them enough to stay with them until they come to that decision, like people loved us the same way. Fourthly, those who associate with sinners are going to be criticized. Every episode has critics. Jesus healed the paralytic, and what did the scribes do? They took offense. Jesus ate with Matthew's friends and the Pharisees took offense. Jesus didn't fast like all the other Pharisees and disciples of John, and they took offense. So when Jesus did something, they took offense. When he didn't do something, they took offense. And when he didn't say something, they took offense. People are going to misunderstand if we are truly loving to non-believers, but we are going to be committed to pleasing our Heavenly Father and not appeasing our peers. We will love whomever God sends, wherever they're at. And not everybody will like that or understand that, but that's what we do because we are following Jesus' example in doing so. Fifthly, Jesus has the authority to make things new, and so it's okay to realize we may step aside from traditions on occasion. It's okay to meet in a school. 
It's okay to meet on a Sunday rather than a Saturday. When the new covenant came, there was this completely reversal on so many levels that when you look at the old covenant, when you look at the Old Testament, it was geographically centralized in Israel. It was racially centralized in the Jews. It was temporally centralized on certain feasts and uh, holy days like the Day of Atonement. And it was focused on one particular group of priests. Now the new covenant comes, now the gospel comes, now Pentecost happens, and what happens? We're geographically decentralized. We go out to the outermost parts of the earth. Now we are racially decentralized. It's every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now every day and moment is holy unto the Lord. All of life is worship. And how many people are priests in God's new covenant world? All Christians are a kingdom of priests. Everything that was focused became radically pushed outward as the gospel goes out of the world. And there's going to be some unexpected forms in this new covenant work of Christ. And finally, Jesus sacrificed himself to forgive sins and to call sinners and to make things new. And that's good news that we should share with others. That good news saved our souls and it will save the souls of others. That good news transformed our lives, our marriages, our homes, our relationships. It'll do the same for others. And so we should be eager to share this news that Jesus came and died and rose again and is coming again to share and to install. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for the clear teaching of the Gospels. We thank you for Jesus' willingness to not just visit with scholars in universities, to not merely sequester with priests in the temple, to not merely isolate with rabbis and synagogues, but he lived and walked along people like us, tradesmen, lay workers, sinners. We thank you that he is the God-man, that you so loved us that you sent God the Son to become Jesus the man so that he could be our perfect representative and keep the commands of the law on our behalf, that he could pay the penalty for our sins when he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave as an historical demonstration that you have accepted that sacrifice and that you have given him the authority to forgive sins. Father, if there is anyone here who has not yet done that, would you, in this day, maybe even at the end of the service, open their eyes to see that they aren't perfect, but one day they will stand before the perfect God, and none of us can stand before you on our own righteousness. And would you open their heart to embrace Christ as their Savior, and would they find forgiveness even this day? So we thank you for this text. We thank you for the gospel. May we live it out wisely and lovingly, by your grace, for your glory we ask in your Son's name. Amen.